Episode 144 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. My name is Rashid Graham, uh, 23, years old, 23 years old from Northwest London, and I'm training to be a commercial pilot, and I simply love to fly. Avi Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is with Rashid from the UK. A special shout out to Adventures of Rico for setting this up, for putting me in contact with Rashid. Rashid has a great story. Rashid has faced the highs, the lows, the highs and lows, and over and over and over again. Find out how he was eventually selected for a cadet program only for the coronavirus pandemic to take that away from him. And he was forced with the decision, do I leave flight training or do I find a way to pay for my school and my flight training? So stay tuned for that. Let me know if you enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy this podcast or this episode, please share it with a friend. Share it with uh, aviation friends or non-aviation friends. Also leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done so already. And make sure you follow us on Instagram. Uh, there's a giveaway going on Instagram right now. You can win a free Laddie International Airways high speeds and low fares sticker. It's a retro sticker for Laddie, which is kind of funny because Laddie is anything but retro, but go ahead and check that out. There's an Instagram post on there. I'm giving away 95, I believe it is 95 of these stickers anywhere in the whole world. All you need to do is check out the post on Instagram. You'll know which one it is. Got to make sure you're following though. Aviation, I want to keep you any longer. So any further ado, here's my buddy Rashid from the UK. Rashid, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hi, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Uh, before, we were just talking about uh, uh, some football, some soccer for everyone in America, since we call it the wrong name. But uh, we're talking crap about how Bayern Munich's dominating London recently. <laughs> yeah, Bayern Munich are absolutely dominating world football at the moment. And it's sad to see as an Arsenal fan that <laughs> we can't do as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you have one of the German players. You have Mizuto Zil, right? He's still in the league or he's still in the team or is he still being punished for not doing so well? He, he's still being punished, even though we <laughs> desperately need him. <laughs> what a shame. What a shame. <laughs> but anyways, I'm sure I could start another podcast, talk about soccer all day, but we're here to talk about aviation. We are here to talk about you, talk about your story, kind of what's going on in your life. Uh, before we do kickstart on that, I do want to give a shout out to Rico from Adventures of Rico for setting this up. Like I said earlier, Rico's a good friend. So if he's ever recommending anyone, I know that it's got to be a good person, and a good story. So I'm looking forward to getting down and talking with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, Rico, he's an amazing guy. He's definitely helped me in my journey so far. So a big shout out to Rico again. Sweet. So let's go ahead and uh, just get into it, man. Why aviation? What was your uh, what was the original kind of draw to you for aviation? So uh, I've been asked this question a lot. And um, I always say it was the aviation bug. Um, when I was about three or four years old, my mom asked me what I wanted to do. And um I initially said I wanted to be a Power Ranger and, you know, that's, that's pretty normal for that age. But she asked me again a little while later and I said a pilot and she was shocked because, you know, I hadn't been exposed to aviation. I mean, I'd been on holiday at this point. I'd been on a, I'd been on a plane, but, you know, I had no family who were pilots, you know, cabin crew, air traffic control, who was in aviation. So it was just something that I just think it was always innate and something I was destined to do. So you had no exposure whatsoever to aviation other than maybe traveling for holiday? Yeah, pretty much. Um, no no exposure at all. Do you remember what it was about aviation that made you love it, that made you want to become a pilot? Was it just how cool it was? You know, you're looking on the ground, you see something fun, and you're like, man, how does that work? Or what was uh, the actual interest in it? Was it just childhood dream and that's it? Or was there like something that just fascinated you so much at an early age that you wanted to dive in? I think it, it was initially a childhood dream, but you know, as I got older, it, it's the freedom that flying brings me. Do you know, like once you get airborne, everything, all your stresses, all your worries, they're left on the ground and you're just embarking on something new. And I, I just think that if you're able to do that every day, then it's, you know, it's such an amazing feeling. I wonder that can't be described really. Yeah, I really can't. And coming from an aviation, from, coming from a, a family that's not necessarily in aviation, was your mom kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> aviation, we're not going to be a pilot. It's not a pilot family. Or was she like, all right, let's do it. Let's figure it out. Let's make it work. She was definitely very, very, she was shocked at first, but she was definitely very, very supportive. Um, you know, it's something different. Uh, like you said, there's no, there's, there are no families in my, there's no pilots in my family. 
So if I'm the first one to be able to do it, then uh, she was always she was all over it. From from coming from I guess the outside into the aviation world, was it easier than you thought, or harder than you thought to get into aviation? Because I always say that it's it's relatively easy to get into aviation, but for some reason, if you're outside of aviation, it seems very daunting. But really, all you have to do, at least in the states, you just have to Google flight schools, and you can go show up, and you can pretty much fly the next day. Uh, what's that process like? What was your process like in figuring out how to make this dream a reality over there in uh, the UK? Um. From the UK perspective, I found it very difficult uh, because, as we both know, that aviation is inherently expensive. And, um, you know, I grew up in a single parent household and my mum struggled with three kids. So for me to say I want to go to learn to fly wasn't the easiest of conversations. So um, I think my journey up, up to this point has definitely been very, very turbulent. But, you know, one that I've, you know, I love it. And it's definitely something that's made me who I am today. Yeah, for sure. And uh, going back to when you first had that dream of being a pilot, were you three years old or was it a little bit after three? So I said I wanted to be a pilot at about three, four years old, but I only really took it seriously once I got into high school. So I was about maybe 11, 12 years old. What was the process like when you're 11 and 12? Kind of was this the the reality of I really want to do this? I need to figure out how to make it happen. Did you just Google stuff how to fly? Did you fly flight simulators? Were you applying to flight schools? What did that look like? Yeah. So at this point, 11, 12 years old, I was really just on the internet, and searching different ways to, to become a pilot. So I had the military route and the commercial route, but you know, I had always had my mindset on being a you know an airline pilot. So uh, at this point. I really just started to Google search the best ways. And, you know, at that point, I got a flight sim, my first flight sim. I started flying Microsoft X. Um, and that's my real, my first real taste of flying. What did you find when you searched? Because the process is so different here in the States. Like I said, I mean, it is still very expensive. I, I know it is more expensive over in Europe, or at least I think it is. But was it very accessible for someone that's 11 or 12 to get into, into the industry over there? Or was it pretty hard? I think it was pretty hard. Um, you know, when you Google how to be a commercial pilot in the UK, you, you get the, the big schools that are coming up and they're charging you know, in excess of £100,000 to complete an ATPL. So um, it's quite daunting at first. You know, you see all these big figures and you think, you know, how am I going to do this? But there are ways to, to, to get around that. What ways are there to get around it, if you don't mind me asking? Um, so I joined the Air Cadets. Uh, which is the your equivalent of the Civil Air Patrol. Um, so I joined the Air Cadets when I was 13. And one of the good things about the Air Cadets is that they provide young people with free flying. So um, I joined at the age of 13, and then that's where I learned to fly. And the good thing is that, you know, it's a military aircraft, so you're, you're instructed by some of the best, you know, best pilots in, in the country. So um, that was definitely a good stepping stone into getting into flying. Yeah. When you say that you were trained, were you actually trained to receive your private pilot license or was it just kind of learn the basics and kind of helps develop this love eventually to send you off to a flight school? Yeah. So it's, um, it doesn't count towards a PPL, but um, it's something called air experience where you get, you get to learn the basics, develop a passion for it. And then that will hopefully be a stepping stone into a commercial or military, the military route. And then uh, when you were when you're doing this, did you figure out if you wanted to go? I know you said you really want to be an airline pilot, but did you find maybe going the military route was a great way for you to become an airline pilot, or did you just focus on being a civilian air, air pilot to get to your airline pilot goals? Yeah, so at this point, while I was in the air cadets, my mind started to shift towards the military route simply because you know military flying is so much more varied than uh, civilian flying so at that point i was going on camps just talking to military pilots you know getting experienced flights and my mind really started to shift towards actually military flying with the hope of going into airline flying um once i you know completed my service and then did you actually join the military then uh, no, so I joined the reserves. The, it's called a university air squadron in the UK um, when I went to university. So I was really set on joining the air force. Um, so I joined the reserves, and then I started to learn to fly again. I was doing a lot of military flying, and then uh, I sort of I logged about fifty hours in a light aircraft. Um, 
So that was all for free um, and sort of the military route, but didn't end up joining full time at all. Uh, doing it the reserve way. I know in the States we have the reserves, but they will kind of take you up and, and teach you how to fly and return to a certain amount of a years dedicated to service there. And you could be reserves. You could still have a full-time job. You can fly the airlines and you can still yeah. get caught out every month to go do a weekend, I believe it is possibly. Was that a similar route and a similar process or is it pretty different? Yeah. Um, similar, very, very similar. Um, except we have no obligation to join the full-time forces, but you know, we could still go to university, we'll still have a job. We just had to commit to weekends where you go and exercise and um, something we call squadron nights, uh, which is an allocated day each week to actually all come together. So what did that look like for uh, for aviation? I know you said you got 50 hours. Was that similar to your pra- your previous uh, time when you did the air cadets where could you log that or was that still just kind of like learning hours, like you said, where you can't necessarily log it, but you have a fundament- fundamentals and you kind of understand how to fly? So at this point, I could log, actually log the hours. So um, at this point, I already had my private pilot's license. So I just used these hours that I got in the university air school just to keep my, my, my license valid. Cool. All right. So let's go back a little bit then. When, so when did you get your actual private pilot license? Uh, in 2017, I actually got it for a scholarship. So once I left the air cadets, I was about 17. And I started applying for scholarships and um, the, the scholarship culture in the UK isn't as big as it is in the, in the States, but there are, there are some available. Um, so I got a 12 hour scholarship um, that took me from zero to my first solo. So I learned to fly the Piper Warrior. And then the, the following year, I was judged to be the best student from the previous year, scholars, and I got a further 30 hours um towards my private pilot's license and then uh, went to scotland in 2017 and did the full course did pass my skills test and i was issued my, with my license that's awesome uh one, one question i do have with uh someone like you said flying is so expensive and when you're when you're relying so much on scholarships and and when scholarships are kind of really paying the way and paving the way for you to get this license and rating um, how hard is it to, cause I know the scholarship can eventually dry up. Did you ever have a period where you couldn't fly because there wasn't any money to pay for, for your flying or was it pretty, did you find yourself once that ended, you were received the other scholarship to keep on flying? So, um, when I started getting into scholarships, I got turned away left, right and center for about a year, year and a half. And then I went for a period where every scholarship I applied for, I, I got, so the flying was quite consistent during that phase but um yeah there were times where i wasn't flying at all because there were no scholarships available or i just didn't get a scholarship so um it it depends what was the hardest part in your actual training was it just uh the actual just really needing the money and and hoping that the scholarship would come through or was or get the scholarship or was it the the physical and actual training it was actually getting my foot into the door and actually getting scholarships because, you know, I was very passionate. I knew I wanted to fly and that's the only thing I wanted to do. But because these scholarships are so competitive and so hard to come by, it was probably actually getting the right application down on paper and making sure it was perfect to actually ensure that I'd get a scholarship. What did you do to actually make your application perfect? Because I talked to a couple of people before and they really said, and in the States, there's a, there is a good amount of scholarships. It's not necessarily we'll pay for your private, but there's $500 here, $1,500 here. And it all adds up. It all, it all can pay for a private pilot license, instrument commercial, if you really go after it. And he mentioned that a lot of people just don't take it seriously when they apply. He said that if you actually put the time and effort, like you said, you actually, your chances go up very high. And a lot of people actually don't even end up applying because they just think, oh, it's not worth it or I'm not going to get this. What did you do to make sure that everything was perfect? Uh, did you go out for outside help? Did you sit down with your mom? Did you sit down with friends, did you teachers or whoever to look it over? Or is it just kind of you on a mission uh, by yourself? I'm getting this done. This application is great. Uh, so I, I believe the key to actually getting scholarships, making yourself stand out, making yourself very well-rounded because, you know, everyone wants to, want, everyone wants these coveted scholarships and they're probably saying the same thing. So I went out and got a job, part-time job, to start working in a team, um, get myself organized, you know, punctuality, that sort of thing. 
joined sports teams, did volunteering. I just did a whole host of things that are not necessarily aviation related, but I can just talk about in my, in my applications um, to make myself more well-rounded. But um, when I was about 18, I met um, a very lovely woman called Jen- Jenny. She flies for NetJets and um, I was put in contact with her by my neighbour. And we, we started to talk about my journey and her journey and naturally she became my mentor. So I, I started writing scholarship applications and then you know, I'd pass it by Jenny and then she would look over it to see what I could include, what I could take out. And from there, I sort of mastered, you know, the perfect scholarship application. Did you notice that your your scholarship applications or even your career was helped out so much as soon as you got this mentor? Oh, yes, exactly. Because I, I believe mentors are cheat codes to the industry because they've gone through the journey beforehand. So they can, you know, feedback valuable knowledge as to what you could do to make your your journey a lot better yeah absolutely there is ever i've said this a million times and people make fun of me and they give me crap for it but it is just so true like you said their mentors are so important to success they can help you help keep you from making mistakes they can help guide you on the path of what to do they can say wait don't take that job or take that job you know they can help you and mold you into fast tracking a career yeah exactly that is i couldn't have said it any better uh, because her her journey to you know the flight deck wasn't exactly the easiest. So if she can make it easier for the next person coming up, then it was a, it was a no brainer for her. But yeah, like you said, um, they're they're a wealth of knowledge. And as an aspiring pilot, a student pilot, I think everyone should be aspiring to get a mentor because they're a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. Uh, in the states, we have this place, uh, this organization called Professional Pilots of Tomorrow. I don't know if they do much over in Europe. I think they might just be focused, but I hope that there is a group similar to that over in the UK, over in Europe in general, so they can they can help younger people get in aviation because we all know we need younger aviators and younger pilots. Yeah. <laughs> what uh? Yeah, what was your? What'd you say? Oh, sorry. No. I, I was just gonna say, what was your experience like when you were training for your private? It mentioned like you you had a bunch of experience going in. You were able to log some hours and uh, in, in air cadets, and, and not necessarily being able to actually, or you weren't necessarily able to actually log it, but you did gain a general amount of experience. Did that really help you when you went to go get your private pilot license, or did you find yourself back to square one? Uh, it it definitely helped um, with the air experience flying. You know, they're they're going through like effects of control. Um, you know, power changes. They're, they're teaching you the, the PPL syllabus, even though you can't log the hours. It's still, still experience. So, and and plus, I was flight simulator a lot. So I was quote unquote teaching myself to fly. So when I started my public pilot's license, it was you know like I hadn't like I was flown before, and it felt very natural. Did you find anything maybe more difficult than the other in the actual flying aspect of it, or the studying uh, when you're going for your PPL? Uh, yeah, it was the studying because I was on an intensive course. I, I did my PPL in four weeks. So I had an experience doing an intensive course while studying for the PPL exam. So that was a new experience for me. And um, it's something I had to adjust to very, very quickly. Four weeks. That's quick, man. Dang. I didn't expect to do it that quickly. But, you know, when you have the wealth of instructors and the weather on your side, then they would literally want to churn you through and get you out as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because they can get the next student in and make some more money off them, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so was it a plan four weeks? Like when you signed up for this training, did you know you would get it done in four weeks? Or like you said, uh, it just kind of happened to work out that way. Um, I had a time scope of four to six weeks, but in the UK, the weather is notoriously always very awful. So it's a minimum of four weeks. So I thought I'd just take the full amount of time. But when I actually did it in four weeks, I was, I was quite shocked. But I think it goes to show like if you're very determined to actually get it done, then it's, it's possible. How does the weather actually affect you flying there? Because I know it's gloomy. I know it's gray. Is it usually a low overcast and you can't get above it? Or is it about 5,000 feet and you can still do some um, some maneuvers underneath that? What does the actual weather kind of hinder your flying? So I learned to fly in Scotland and you can wake up every day and it's, you know, low uh, low clouds, stratus and drizzle or heavy rain every day. So um, it's very hit and miss. And then when it's bad, it's really bad. And when it's good, it's really good. 
Yeah, it's uh, there. That sounds very similar to the Midwest. If in the United States, like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, and, and especially in the wintertime, it has a very kind of low, depressing, gray, overcast layer, and then uh, it does rain quite a bit as well. Yeah, did you ever think about going elsewhere outside of the UK? Was that an opportunity? Was that an option? Because it is cheaper in some other places. Um, did you ever? Was that even a possibility for someone in your stance, or was it just I need to get a scholarship? I want to do it in the UK. I want to fly a UK airline. Um, I, I considered every option. Um, Florida is quite a um, attractive destination for people from the UK because the weather's is good all year round. Um, when I thought about doing the modular route and our building, I, when I was younger, I definitely thought about going to the States and doing some flying. But then again, it comes down to the cost. And then I discovered scholarships and I thought, okay, if I can get as many scholarships as possible in the UK, I can see where that leaves me and what I need to do to work, start working towards a CPL, MEIR and that sort of stuff. How many scholarships did you want to apply for and how many scholarships have you received so far? So I've probably applied to 30 plus scholarships and I got five, but those five scholarships, looking back, were all I needed. All you needed for private or for all of it? For, yeah, for all of it up until, up until the, um, where I am now. Yeah. And, uh, where are you right now? So, um, in 2019, I started at Flight Training Europe in Spain. So I, I was lucky enough to be selected for Air Lingus's future pilot program. So I don't know how many cadetships you have in, in the States, but Air Lingus is, is probably the only fully funded. So they select and, and train their own airline pilots. So I started ground school for the ATPL course last year, but had to stop in March due to the, the outbreak of the pandemic. Um, so in March, I came back home, studied for my ATPLs, and then in July, they actually cut the cadet course because of the effect that COVID had on the aviation industry. They just couldn't afford to fund our training anymore, and they couldn't guarantee us a job anyway at the end. Um, so I was faced with the, the challenge of going back to square one where, you know, I'm back, back at square one, I need to pay the excess amount that hasn't been paid for the course and it was £60,000. So at this point, the airline had already invested about £44,000. I just need to find the other £60,000 to, you know, continue the course. So I've come this far and, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot and it's, all, and it's, all, it's the only thing I've wanted to do. And I'm already on a course and it's impossible for me to walk away at this point because I'll be going back to square one. And do you know what? I love this job and it's, it's the only thing I wanted to do. So I started a crowdfund uh, called Rash to Fight School in September. And the aim was to hopefully raise £60,000 to return to the course in Spain. And, um, you know, by a stroke of luck, um, I was lucky enough to raise £70,000 in, in a month. So you said 70000 70000 Oh my yeah. gosh, dude. That's amazing. 70,000 in a month. So returning back to the course in January just to complete the ATPL course. Dude, that's crazy. Congratulations. I didn't, I didn't get the update on that. I didn't know that you actually reached your number. That's incredible. Thank you very much. So yeah, man. when we were connected by Rika, I thought I, I was probably at about less than 10 K. Um, so it really did. It really did take off in a short space of time. Rico's going to think he's, he funded your whole program. You better watch out. He's going to take all the credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> he had a big part to play, so I'll, I'll give him his credit. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. You don't care, right? You're yeah. getting your training done. It doesn't matter. Everyone can yeah. take credit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah, exactly. man. First off, congratulations. That is incredible. Uh, I can't imagine... Uh, the feelings, uh, just the ranges of emotions that you went through. You know, you're getting selected for a very, very crazy, great opportunity to be in a cadet program, to have your flight training paid for, to go fly for uh, an airline and a good airline. Um, you can't help, you You did nothing wrong. And then all of a sudden coronavirus comes in and, you know, hey, we're going to have to pause training. And then, hey, we actually don't have any money and we don't even know what the airline's going to look like in the future. So we can't do this anymore and we're not going to fund this. And then that has to just be mm -hmm. kind of soul crushing because your dream was so close to you. But I want to give you a lot of props, uh, no pun intended for aviation, but I want to give you props <laughs> for not giving up. 
Because a lot of people, they take that that punch right to the gut and they just kind of be like, well, that's it. I tried. I gave it my hardest, but you kind of soul searched and you saw like, I've come so far. I've already invested uh, enough money via scholarships or other companies have invested money in me and I'm so close. I do not want to give up right now. And, and crowdfunding might sound easy, but I can't imagine it is easy to either one raise a single dollar, let alone 70,000, sorry, pounds, I should say, and how difficult it might be to kind of put yourself out there and how your friends or how the general public might view you asking others for money. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, you know, I had a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, the cadet program is the golden ticket to becoming a commercial pilot in, in Europe. And anywhere, if, if cadet programs exist, and um, you know it was taken away, and you know I've always wanted to be a pilot, like I said before, and this was not going to stop me. Um, and crowdfunding is, is it's not easy at all. When you know I came up with the idea of actually crowdfunding, I was completely against it because we're in the middle of a you know global pandemic. People are losing their jobs. There are pilots that are losing their jobs. You know, even going on furlough and what makes me like what was I to think that people actually you know invest in me to actually go and complete my course but I didn't want to be in a position in you know five ten years when things have gone back to normal and you know I'm stuck at home not flying and I'd rather do something now to get myself back in the training rather than look back and think you know I didn't even try so um it, it was a no-brainer I just had to really swallow my pride and just do it and yeah. it worked out. So. I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm really glad you did because a lot of people won't take that opportunity, won't take that chance and won't risk it to do mm-hmm. that. And uh, for a lot of people, it doesn't work out. I mean, a lot of people don't say they don't yeah. reach that amount. So you are very, very lucky. And I know that you understand that. And I'm, I'm excited for you though, man. That is, that is so, so exciting. Yeah, it's, um, I'm still shocked. I haven't celebrated. Um, I looked at the crowdfund page and I was still in shock a couple of days after looked at it, still in shock. I just had a dominoes just to celebrate. And you know what? I'm just looking forward to just going back to training because there's still a lot of work to, to be done. So then, I challenge you to, to keep that fire, to keep that feeling of what felt like your dream was so far away when it was so close and it mm-hmm. got ripped from you, to keep that fire going and get your training done as quick as possible. Be the best student you can be. Be the best airline pilot you can be. And then when you have the opportunity to give back to someone else, to someone else that's in a certain situation as you, or maybe they don't need 70,000 pounds, but you know, maybe they need $100 or 100 pounds or five pounds, you know, and just give back and, uh, and just give back in the world because you've been given a great opportunity and you, I'm sure one day you'll find a way to, to repay that and help someone else out. Oh, most definitely. Um, that was one of the main reasons why I decided to do the crowdfund because there's probably a lot of people in my position, maybe that they don't want to become pilots, but you know, they've this, this whole pandemic has you know, not gone their way and they're, they're feeling disheartened. So I hope it's a motivation for you know more people to go out there and actually strive for what they want. So, once I finish my training and, you know, when things go back to normal, um, I get my first airline job. Maybe I can motivate more young people to actually go out there and strive for what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you will for sure. So keep it up. I want to go back to uh, the cadet program because you said uh, you might have some in the States. To my knowledge, we don't really have anything like that in the States uh, unless there's something I'm missing. We might have one flight school that operates that can guarantee you a job. But again, that was different with, with coronavirus and you still had to pay for your training. But Mm-hmm. Was this the only cadet program you applied for? Do you, most people only apply for one? Do you apply for every single one and just hope that you get a chance to go? Uh, what did it look like when you were choosing your actual cadet program? So when I was about 17, 18, there were two cadet programs run by um, British Airways and Virgin Atlantic. But the only downside is that you, if you were selected, you have to offer an, a house or some sort of asset as collateral. So I, I just thought, you know what? I'll just apply anyway and see what the application process is like and what I should be looking out for. So I applied, didn't hear a thing. Um, you know, the, the the deadline came and went, didn't hear a thing. So I thought, you know, I was, I was unsuccessful. But with the uh, Lingus Future Pilot Program, it's fully funded, so you don't need to offer any cholesterol or, or anything of the sort. And, you know, you get a job on the A320 at the end of your training flying from Dublin airport, which is the busiest airport in Ireland. 
uh, it's, it's a dream, it's the golden ticket. And for anyone, any aspiring pilots, you know, across the world, this is probably the best cadet program that's out there. How difficult was it? Because if, if this is the best program that's out there, I mean, it's like applying to Harvard or applying to Oxford. Like everyone wants to go there. So everyone that can is going to apply. Were there, are there thousands of applications, hundreds of applications? Uh, do you know what the acceptance rate is uh, necessarily of who can actually be accepted? So it's very competitive. The year I applied, there were 8,500 applicants for 18 places. Uh, so it's very competitive. And um, the cadet program is open to anyone across the world, just as long as you have you know, the requirements to work and live in, in, in Ireland, uh, you're good to go. Do you think that you applying for all these scholarships helped you kind of figure out how to sell yourself, how to sell yourself in the best light, how to really win this cadet program spot? Do you think all those scholarships and all that practice really helped you to kind of get that cadet program? Uh, yeah, I think it definitely did because uh, with these scholarships, I had to really you know express why you know these companies should invest their money in me, why I want to be a pilot, and why I'm a suitable candidate for these scholarships. So. When I applied for the future pilot program, it was pretty much the same concept. I had to really, really, you know, persuade and sell myself to 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 the board because ultimately they're investing hundreds of thousands of pounds into my training, and they want to recruit the best candidate. Not only because they're investing a lot of money, but they want people who genuinely want to fly for the airline and. I really think I fit into both categories because, and even if I didn't get the, the cadet program the first time, you know, I've faced many setbacks in terms of scholarships and on my journey. So, um, you know, it definitely made me, I think, a suitable candidate for the for the cadet program. What was your pitch to him? What exactly did you say? How did you sell yourself? So, in my interview, they asked why I wanted to be a pilot for Aer Lingus, and it was a no-brainer, really. Um, Aer Lingus is an amazing airline. They fly the latest aircraft to a, a wide range of routes across across Europe. And then the fact that they're willing to sponsor their own pilots suggests that they're looking for people who genuinely want to fly for the airline, people who are passionate and people who are determined also. And I fit I fit that model quite perfectly because you know, on my journey to becoming a pilot, I knew that the course would be a barrier and I didn't let it stop me and I faced many many setbacks in my in my I say my career but my journey and um that's that's the sort of profile I'm looking for so I think it was just you know fate that this cadet program opened when I needed it to when I think it's interesting when you go and put so much energy into applying for something I always wonder what you're feeling when you're done. Because I know whenever I'm done with, a, say, a big presentation or uh, like a big performance, you kind of feel down. You're like, oh, well, maybe that you're, you know, you're on your own. Wow, I can't talk. You know, you are your own worst critic. Did you leave that interview feeling great? Or did you leave that interview like, man, I left it all. Like, it's up to God. It's up to, it's up to them. Like, it's all going to work out. Or you're like, dang, I blew it. This is not going to work out. I was relieved more than anything. But I definitely walked away saying, thinking that oh, I should have said this, you know, I sort of I should have researched more on that because I got a question about uh, the fly-by-wire system on the A320, and during my preparation, I thought, let me go, let me go over the fly-by-wire system, and at the end, I just thought, you know what, they're not going to ask me about this, and lo and behold, that's that's what they asked me, and so I went away kicking myself, thinking that I should have prepared more, but. Um, it was just something I took note of and said, you know what, make sure that I cover all areas if I need to for my next interview. Yeah, it's really funny you bring up them asking you a question that you never thought they would ask or someone told you they never asked. Before I did my private pilot check ride, or maybe it was my instrument check ride, I was like, hey, do I need to know this? I can't remember the subject right now. I was like, should I study this? Like, is this something I should waste my time with if it's not even going to be asked? And he's like, he looked me dead in the eyes because I've never heard of a single examiner asking that question. And lo and behold, if not the first, maybe the second question was that exact question. And I didn't listen to my instructor. Luckily, I was a rebel and I was like, I'm going to look over at least one time. And I was able to kind of fumble mm -hmm. my way through it. But if anyone's listening to this, I will tell you, if you ever have any idea that they might ask a question, just look over it. Just somewhat generalize yourself with that information because you never know what they could ask. Someone could be like, hey, we haven't asked that question. Well, let's ask him. Yeah, precisely. Um, I try to sort of, you know, fumble my way through it. And 
I knew it wasn't working, but I just had to put my hands up and say, you know what, it's I don't know the fly by wire fly by wire system in and out, but I can go away and look at it. Yeah. Well, she let's take a break real quick. Uh, we got a quick sponsor read, and then we'll come right back. All right, welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. We're here with Rashid. He is kind of, we just kind of summed up talking about applying for the cadet program. Now my question is, how long did you wait to hear back for this cadet program? Did they kind of have you on pins and needles for a couple of weeks, a month or a couple of days? Or did you get a phone call the next day being like, hey, welcome to the program. Let's go. So my journey to the cadet program was a bit turbulent as well. So after the selection day, um, there was about two months radio silence and then, I got a call in the summer to say, okay, you've passed the selection. We're going to invite you to Dublin to do a class one medical. Uh, so at this point, I thought that was it. They invited me for a medical. I'm in. And it was the complete opposite. So I did it. I did my medical, passed it. And then a month went by, didn't hear anything. Two months went by, didn't hear anything. And then I was placed in a holding pool for a year. So I was supposed to go out in November 2018 and didn't go out until November 2019. So um, I was in a holding pool after doing my medical. Is that normal? Is that, uh, were there other people in that option as well? Was it kind of like, we're going to wait until these people finish up and then you'll come in like you were selected or were you still not even guaranteed a spot? So no, at this point I wasn't even guaranteed a spot. I was in the holding pool of about 30 other people. and. Um, all the people in this holding pool had a 50-50 chance of either being selected or not being selected. So it was just a case of luck whether they had a new cadet program coming out the following year and whether I would be selected for it. And uh, luckily, luckily I was. What, uh, what goes through your mind when you're kind of in that holding pattern? Because I'd imagine that's a very dangerous place because you, one, don't want to go try train anywhere else because you have this opportunity that you think you're going to get. So you're not going to go look for other options. Uh, did you keep current with anything that you had did you go fly did you try to get scholarship money to continue to fly on your own or did you look for other options um it, the, the holding pool is a dangerous place because your life is pretty much on hold because you, you don't know what they're going to do with you um so i was at university at the time in my final year of university and um i didn't want to go back to university and get the call to say okay you're going out to spain so just to minimize you know all the contract issues with going to university with accommodation and stuff. I took a gap year from university. So I started working at Heathrow airport and work at the Heathrow airport as a ground handler just to buy myself some more time. If I didn't get onto the cadet program, I could always re-enroll at university and complete my final year. But it was, it was torture because everywhere I went, I saw Aer Lingus everywhere. So if I was on the train, the person next to me would have a bag tag that said Aer Lingus on it. You know, I look up to the sky, there's an Aer Lingus aircraft flying above me. Even I was at work at Heathrow, I'd see Aer Lingus aircraft taxiing past, taking off landing. So it was absolute torture, but it worked out in the end. Do you think that torture was actually able for you to turn that torture into fuel to be like, man, I don't want to be here any longer. I want to be in that airplane. I need to get out and do this. And like, I have to. Or do you think it was kind of just like, you know how your dream can be so close to you, but yet you can always feel like it's not your dream or it's not capable to be your dream. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it was just more, it drove me more to actually pursue this career and made me really want to get onto the cadet program because but to wait a year to find out that I might not get a place was an option, but you know, just seeing, has seen all these Aer Lingus aircraft and all these all these signs. It made me, made me really want to go and actually be a pilot for this airline. Now, talk about the feeling of getting the phone call, the email, letter, whatever it may be, of being accepted into the Aer Lingus uh, cadet program. What was that feeling like? So that that day, I came back from work and I instantly went to sleep, and I got a call from a, a private number, and I don't usually answer private numbers, so my mind just said, answer it answer it and I did and it was a, a kind lady from HR at Aer Lingus saying is this Rashid um, we have a place in the cadet program are you still interested and I said I shouted yes and that was <laughs> it was I can't describe the feeling but I was just over the moon that you know I've waited so long for com- and had complete radio silence and then out of the blue you know I've got a call to say I'm on the cadet program it's um 
it's probably one of the best feelings ever. Yeah, that's amazing, man. That's bringing a smile to my face just hearing that. I feel like I would have been played a bit like, you know, maybe, you know, I had some other opportunities. Let me check my schedule if I can still do this <laughs> or not. But no, I probably would have been like, hey, yes, sign me up. I'm there. I'm already in Spain right now. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, how, um, long, how long how bef- long between when you got that phone call and when you started your training in Spain? So it was about six months between getting the call and actually starting on the course. So literally that day, I wrote my notice ready to hand into work. But I didn't hand it in straight away. I just had it ready and prepared because I knew I was leaving at that point. And then you, so six months before you actually went to Spain? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was your, what was your work like? Were they, were they, did they know this was always kind of a dream for you? Or were they surprised and kind of like, wait, you're actually leaving? Um, so, you know, when I spoke to my colleagues at work, I said that I want to be a pilot. Uh, I don't think they really took me seriously because I, I was a baggage hands at the time. And they've seen a lot of people come in and say they want to be pilots. But I think once I handed in my notice and I said, I'm going guys, that's when they really took me seriously. Like this guy is actually going to train to be a pilot. That's awesome. That must have been a good feeling though for them to be like, I told you, what did you think I was doing the last six months, man? I told you I want to be a pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they just thought I was just giving it the talk. Yeah. But um, I, was, I, was, I was very much serious. That's awesome. What was it like going to Spain? Uh, going, obviously you're on your own. You uh, Do they have dormitories for you? What's the whole experience like? What's the whole kind of, you, your first couple of moments when you're there, are you still just giddy with excitement about being there? Or is like the realization of how much work you're getting ready to get yourself into kind of takes over? So luckily, I was actually on a course with 12 other people split between two classes. Um, and one of the guys on my course, I actually knew him from university. So it was exciting. It's, it's something new, um, especially from working at Heathrow. I was working very long hours. And now I'm going to Spain. It's sunny all year round. You know, there's just good vibes. I'm trained to be a pilot. Uh, it's exciting. And um, we're in dorms. So um, it's just like being back at university. So that was, it was easy to settle, settle into. What, um, how many people are invited or how many people are accepted into the program? So they took six of us from the holding pool and they took six new cadets from their program. They started that, that year we went out. Is it a kind of a community program where everyone wants everyone to succeed because, you know, there's no like top gun. There's no, you're going to fly the fighter pilot or you're going to get the worst aircraft. You know, you're all kind of agreed upon going into the 320, agreed upon joining this great airline. So did everyone want to help each other out or was there definitely kind of, we call them here gunners. I don't know if you call them, the, I guess you're an Arsenal fan, so that should make sense, right? But we, <laughs> we call them gunners, like go-getters and they kind of will do anything to be at the top and make other people look bad just as long as they do better. Was that? Did that happen there or was it kind of everyone just in a community like, all right, we're all here. Let's get, let's be the best that we can possibly be. I mean, there's, there's a top gun on every course, but luckily with the cadets I was with, there wasn't, um, you know, we've done the hardest part in getting onto the cadet program. All we need to do is get good marks and we've got a job on the A320. So, um, there is a bit of competitiveness between us to get the best grades possible, but it's not to the detriment of each other. Like we were definitely, a team and we work together but yeah like you said there's always a top gun on every course and there's definitely one one that i remember from the course yeah there was one <laughs> all right we'll leave it at that we won't we won't name names or anything <laughs> yeah 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 that's funny um how long were you there for before coronavirus kind of took over i was out in spain for five months what all were you able to get done when you're out there? Uh, you had your private already. Were you able to get your instrument, your commercial? Were you able to get many ratings? So I had just finished ground school. So I did probably what I think is the toughest part. Um, the theory is probably the hardest. So I just finished the first phase of ground school for six six subjects. So I was two weeks away from sitting my actual exams before I was sent home. When in the coronavirus pandemic, like how early did you realize, hey, this is going to affect me? Um, at first I just thought I'd just be at home for a couple of weeks and I'd be back in Spain in no time. It's only when I got home and the lockdown started, um, that it really dawned upon me that this could be really bad because I wasn't very 
end up on, you know, the non-flying side of the job, like recessions, pandemics and that sort of thing. So this is my first experience. So it's probably when the lockdown started in the UK that I really thought that, yeah, this is this is not good at all. What was the communication like with you and Aer Linguists? Were they great at being like, hey, like, oh, this is what we're trying to do? Or was it kind of radio silence, like you're in a holding pattern and then they just tell you it's it's done? Um, at first, they want to comfort us to say, you know what? We don't know what's going to happen. Just go home and study. Like, just it's business as usual. Um, there's nothing wrong here. And then, you know, you see it on the news about, you know, lockdowns and no international flights and then so we could gather that something was wrong and there was there was radio silence for a couple of months but when we got the call to say unfortunately this is it which is i expected it there was nothing that they could do it was probably the best thing to do was just to let us down slowly because there's no point getting getting our hopes up knowing that you know there is no future for us at the airline at the moment that's, I guess that's one thing I wanted to ask at the moment. So when they called you, were they like, hey, this is on pause? Or, hey, we're terminating this cadet program in full and this is you're going to have to reapply if we ever do get this going back up again? What was the, the phone call like? What, was exact, what were their exact kind of words to you when this was going on? So I think you, you got in a nutshell. So they said, unfortunately, uh, you know, due to the effect of COVID, this is the end of the cadet program. We can't afford to pay for your training, but here are your options. Option one, um, you know, we can top up your account. We can give you some extra funding, but unfortunately you have to you know, pay for the rest. Um, option two is to wait for another cadet program. And that wasn't an option for me because that could be, you know, at any point. And um, these cadet programs don't come by very often. And option three was, you know, just to call it a day and, you know, walk away from everything. Um, but, you know, Airlingers were absolutely superb in the way they handled it because they didn't have to actually, you know, give us more funding to cut down the cost for us because there are other similar cadet programs or other airlines where they're in the same position as us. And their airlines have to say, you know what, it's been a good ride, but this is the end and that's it. So um, Airlingers have absolutely handled it in a very superb way yeah it's it's an unfortunate situation all around right like it's it's great to see an airline actually handle a situation like this in a good way and not kind of just be jerks about it because this is dealing with mm-hmm. someone's future with someone's life and i'm glad to hear that they were kind of uh, uh i don't know nice about it or they did it the right way uh is the right thing to say but it is tough. I mean, they're in a really tough situation too. They didn't bring this upon themselves. This is a surprise to them. Everyone's trying to do their best. Everyone's just trying to to survive. I mean, everyone wants to keep their job that they have. And unfortunately, your future with that airline was kind of sacrificed. I, I hate to say it, to, to help secure everyone else's job that's already there. And when you have a job there, you'd probably hope that the same thing would happen as well, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know what? They, they, did, they gave us the best option. And when I look back at it, they, I can't really see the airline justifying, you know, paying for cadet pilots who are not even in the airline where there are current pilots in the airline who are on 50% pay and there's cabin crew being furloughed and other, and other sorts of measures. So um, they did the best they could. So Yeah, I'm absolutely. Happy. I mean, everyone was just trying to do the best that they can. Some did it better than others. Like mm-hmm. you said, there might have been other airlines that could have handled it better but didn't, but they didn't know exactly what was going on mm-hmm. either. I want to kind of focus on your emotions when you got that phone call. You obviously said you're preparing for it, but preparation and reality are two separate things. When you actually get the reality and the reality sinks in and you hear those words, you can prepare for it all you want, but you can't really, you don't know how you're going to react to getting kicked in the butt that hard. You know, you don't know what yeah. your thought process is going to be. What, what was your next, what was your next kind of thought process? What was your next step of action? Was it to immediately like crowdfund? That's all I can do. Or was it, did you, were you down on yourself for a couple of weeks? Did you kind of, um, I don't know. Did you just kind of take it really hard or how did that go? I was very, very heartbroken because, you know, out of everything that could have ended the, the cadet program, you never thought it would be a pandemic. When I was going out the previous year, I never thought I'd be in the position I was now and to have the golden ticket taken away is unthinkable. So um, I was very down. I just tried to, I didn't speak to anyone for a couple of days. Um, but I had to pull myself together. I initially applied to the British Army as a pilot. 
Uh, I was going for the application with the British Army and I just turned to myself and I said, this is not for me at all. Um, you know, as much as I wanted to be in the military when I was younger, I was already trained to be an airline pilot and this is the route I'm on and this is what I want to do. So um, I withdrew my application for the British Army and I started to speak to people, friends and family. And luckily I had a friend from the UK who actually crowdfunded to go to Harvard and and Cambridge actually so um, they were my portal calls and they said you know what your story is better than ours and you can do it so that's when I went with the crowdfunding route and talk about crowdfunding you mentioned you did it in a month that is an incredibly short amount of time to raise 70,000 pounds in one month but I'm guessing it didn't all happen at once and it wasn't all kind of going in your way as when as you might thought Whenever there's a lot of excitement, whenever you do something, whenever you you create something, whether it's crowdfunding or a brand, you put a lot of work into it. And when you first hit send, you really are hoping and wanting it to take off, go viral immediately. But that doesn't always happen. But what it does prove is that if you hold true to it and you keep putting out content, if you keep promoting it, and if you're a good person, people will find you. And they will either, whether it's uh, crowdfund or whether it's buy your merchandise, whether it's listen to your podcast, whatever it may be. How long and what was the process like of this crowdfunding and what was kind of going through your mind when you hit send right right away? So it's a very long process and one that needs to be done very thoroughly and very and properly. Um, so the first point of call for me was to get a crowdfund campaign video sorted. And that's where a lot of crowdfund campaigns go wrong is that they don't do campaign videos so I had a campaign video films where, you know, the public were able to get to know me without actually knowing me. So what I, who I am, where I come from, what I was doing and what, what is my aim. Um, so I had that filmed. I attached it to a, a GoFundMe page. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with GoFundMe. Um, so I did that with a 60,000 target. And then, you know, I just started flooding. So that took me about a month. So I had to, then September 19th, I just started flooding every social media platform possible. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it, it was there. So I initially wanted to launch the crowdfund on September 16th, but something stopped me and I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. But my friends were like, you need to do it. So I literally had to swallow my pride and press send. But the reaction was amazing. Like it, went, it went viral on Twitter. And I had my own hashtag rash to flight school. So um, it, it, was, it, was, it was being shown everywhere. And the, the reception was quite good um, for the first two weeks. But, you know, with these sort of things, you're going to have a lot of people that have a lot to say. And I think that was probably the hardest part about, about the crowdfund was the, the little negative comments. Even though the whole crowdfund was very positive, I started to focus on just the negative ones, even though... It was only a handful. It's hard not to. I mean, from to personalize it and make it close to my experience, which is completely different than what you're going through, but it is the the hard comments and the comments that are mean stick out to you way more than 100 nice comments. You could read 100 comments being like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm so happy for you. It's exciting. And someone will, will say something mean and kind of tear you down and kind of dig into the fears that you had of starting this in the first place. And then those will stick with you forever. And you just have to remember that it doesn't matter. Like these people, one, have some kind of issue going on in their life where they need to verbally condemn you or abuse you in this comment section. Or maybe they're jealous. Maybe they wish they were doing what you're doing as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the way I thought about it. It's that I can't base what I'm doing off the validation of others. That Not everyone's going to agree with what I'm doing. But the reason why it hurt so much is because it came from pilots and I was shocked because I understood what they were saying. They were saying, you know what, it's, it's, a, it's a bad time to go into training. You know, pilots are losing their jobs. You know, I had to work three jobs in, you know, in the rain, snow, thunderstorms. Like, I completely understand that. But I'm in a unique situation where I'm at a very good school. I've already started the course and I don't want to give up this opportunity. This is the only opportunity I have and I'm taking it. And um, I completely understand what they were saying. Um, you know, even when I finish my training next year, I won't go into, the, into a job. And I'm aware of that. But as long as I have a license, I can wait. 
and do something else in the meantime and wait for the industry to pick up and hopefully the airlines start recruiting again. So um, I just had to think of it from that standpoint is that I'm not actually doing it for them. They've, they've got their jobs already. Uh, I'm doing it just to get myself back to training. Yeah, for sure. And it, pilots are idiots. <laughs> you can learn that soon enough. Uh, they're probably more jealous because they had to work three jobs, but you have this, you did have a unique opportunity and they didn't understand. And a lot of pilots kind of bash on the younger generation. They always have coming in. I know when I was starting to train, uh, September 11th, or not September 11th, we were feeling the financial crisis of 2008 and there was a lot of furloughs and everyone was telling me not to become a pilot. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't going to be great. And while I was training was actually the best time I could possibly train. When I was getting out, that's when regionals are starting to pay a lot of extra money. That's when the salaries are really going up and the airline industry really turned. So if you can get necessarily all those ratings done now, you don't know where the industry is going to be in one to two years. Yes, it could still be like this, or it could be like what it was three years ago or or even a year ago where we're hiring like crazy and everyone was getting a job and the pay was great and everything was great. So you never know if this is what you want to do, put your head down, get your ratings done and just kind of hope for the best because you have to accept that this is the industry. The industry is going to go up and it's going to go down. If you love aviation and you really want to do this, then you will be okay with all those things happening. They're still going to suck when they happen and you have to prepare for them as much as possible, which sometimes is impossible when life comes around, but you just kind of got to do your best. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it any better because, you know, I was faced with this, like, like you said, aviation has, has its peaks and trophy. You're going to, you're going to face turbulence. And this is my first setback in my, my career. And if I just walked away, how would I, you know, overcome any other obstacles that I'm going to face in my career? This is, this was my first main hurdle and I've overcome it. So I think I can face any other obstacles that are coming my way so um yeah i had to do it and you know a lot of people are going to say a lot of things about what i did but you know i just took an opportunity and the world is a lot different than what older people think and younger people are just using it to, to their advantage so um for sure i'm glad you did it man because it led us to talk to each other rico introduced you to me and you are gonna kill it and 70,000 pounds raising that's amazing. I guess one question, do you have any kind of uh, celebrities at all? Did you like jump into Lewis Hamilton's DMs or KSI or anyone like that to try to get them to, to get attention of it? Or was it kind of just friends and people that you knew and just random people? Um, so it was mainly just friends and family, like my local community in London. And then I was, I was featured on a documentary, which was on primetime TV. So, um, People Googled me and after the documentary and found my crowdfund and donated. So um, the day the documentary aired in the UK, um, I was on the morning of the documentary, I was on £20,000. And then when the documentary aired, you know, I raised £40,000 in one day. So that goes to, that goes to show you the power of TV. Yeah, you've gone through a lot of emotions in the last six months, man. <laughs> Here's to a year of just like a mellow year where things just go your way. You get your training done. You know, everything's kind of good for a year. I think that'd be very good for you. Yeah. So next year, hopefully. It's yeah, much right. More. Let's hope, it's man. A mellow, mellow year. <laughs> Well, what's, uh, what does your future look like? You know, you had this Aer Lingus thing going on. Would you still want to work for Aer Lingus in the future? Is that still a goal? Uh, are you just training and then you're just going to apply to all airlines possible? Kind of what's your, what's your goal? What's your hope? Um, so the goal is to get back into Aer Lingus when things pick up because they're an amazing airline. Um, but you know, I'm open to anything. Even if I don't go into a flying job straight away, um, I'm looking at other avenues but I still want to fly, um, you know, light aircraft in my spare time. But, you know, the goal is to get back into Aer Lingus. But I think what I'm going to do is start doing a lot more outreach in, you know, schools and colleges just to try and motivate more young people and empower them just to go out there and, you know, you know, chase their dreams. Because I think a lot of young people are just lacking. It's just that, that drive. And if I can be that drive to another young person, then it's something I'm definitely all over. Absolutely. We need more people like you to do that. I know that, that people say they want to, but a lot of times they don't actually follow up. So I encourage you to actually follow up on that and give back and, and try to get more young people in aviation and try to just remind people how great this job and industry is, but also remind them that it can suck for a little bit, but it will get better. Um, that's pretty much all the questions I had for you for your story. Was there anything else that I missed at all? Anything else you wanted to touch on? I think we've covered it all, actually. Perfect, man. That is awesome. I have one more section for you, and then I will go ahead and ask you one more question. But uh, this is the rapid fire section. Uh, it is just 
aviation theme questions and you say the first answer that comes to your mind. Sure. Perfect. Before we start, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to all my Patreon supporters. This section is sponsored by Patreon. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can check out patreon.com slash pilot. But let's go ahead and get into it. I'll start out with an easy one. What is your favorite airplane? My favorite airplane is the 737. All right. And then you're going to go fly an A320, man. You got to say A320, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's my favorite question to ask someone. What is the ugliest airplane you have ever seen? The ugliest airplane? Uh, the Vickers VC-10. Um, mm. I'm not sure how what you know about military aircraft, but VC-10 is probably the ugliest I've seen. All right, stand by. I'm looking it up. Let's see what we got. VC-10. Yeah, it's pretty ugly. I'll give you that. <laughs> Never even heard of that before, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a military aircraft in the UK. All right, what is... Uh, Here's a question. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Um, I wish I knew about how volatile the industry is. Um, I was, I was thought it was rosy. It was going to fly every year, every day, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not like that at all. Definitely not. Who is someone in the industry you would like to meet most? Could be social media. could be uh, someone famous, UK aviation, famous, uh, United States famous, whoever it may be. Who's someone in the industry you would like to meet most? Uh, Rico. <laughs> Rico. Yeah. That's what's up. <laughs> yeah, Rico. That's awesome. Uh, let's see. What's your favorite thing about aviation in general? If you could just choose one thing. The flying. Uh, that's probably a simple answer with the flying. What's the hardest approach or no, what's the hardest flight you've ever had? Um, Dundee to Fife. Uh, Fife's a really small airport in Scotland and the approach is very, very challenging. What is your favorite flight you've ever had of all time? Uh, London to Texas. Oh, nice. I'm guessing you don't mean London to Texas, United States. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah, United States. <laughs> you took your it's 172. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, if we could do it, I would. But yeah. um, it was a BA flight, actually. But um, the, the crew were really good. Ah, cool. That's awesome. Uh, let's see here. What is your favorite airport to land at in the UK or just anywhere? Uh, Heathrow. What's your least favorite airport? Um, Malaga. Malaga in Spain. Ooh, all right. I've definitely heard of that one before. Uh, would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, cities, or oceans? Mountains. All right. What is, let's say you have like 30, 45 minutes to a connecting flight. Uh, what is your go-to airport food? You have you're starving and you just have to get something. What's your quick go-to airport food? Probably McDonald's. McDonald's. Look at that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Airbus or Boeing? Mm, Airbus. <laughs> <laughs> but you love the seven three. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you're confusing Airbus. me, man. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just, just to try and secure a job in the future. Yeah, right. Airbus. I like it. I yeah. like it, man. That's good. That's very smart. What is your favorite airline livery of any airline for a paint job for an airplane? What's your favorite? It'd probably be the EasyJet, EasyJet right. livery. Would you rather fly long trips or short trips? So when I say that, I mean one long trip that's 14, 15 hours long, or would you rather fly 10 short hops in one day? 10 short hops. What is the biggest regret you have in your career so far? Just not enjoying the process as much as I should. Ooh, that's a good one. Absolutely enjoy where you are right now because someone wishes they were in your shoes or had the opportunities that you had. Definitely. What is the biggest win in your career so far? Bouncing back from my setback of uh, losing my funding and going back into training. Absolutely. CRJ, or if you had to ride on a regional jet, would you rather fly in a CRJ or an ERJ? CRJ. Well, let's see. What is your favorite airline to fly on? So you could fly first class anywhere in the world. Who are you going to choose? Erlingus. <laughs> I love it. I'll send it to Erlingus be like, hire this guy. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, uh, Rashid, thank you so much for coming on, man. I have one more question. Uh, you wanted to be a pilot. You knew you wanted to be a pilot from young age and you kind of figured out how to make it work. Um, what if someone's listening to this right now and they just have they just have a lot of questions they want to be where you are they want to have the opportunities you have 
what would you give them for tips? Say three, five, one tip that you would give someone that DMs you or asks you how to get to where you are today. Um, do a lot of research because it can be daunting to see the training costs up front and all these big figures, but there are definitely ways around it. Um, scholarships, scholarships, scholarships. I can't stress it enough. Um, they're out there. Just keep on applying and, you know, be resilient and determined and you'll be fine. Love it. Cool, man. Rashid, thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, you've been through a lot in the last six months. You've had the highs of highs, the lows of lows, and now the highs of highs again. Um, like I said earlier, I challenge you to give back when you have the opportunity to give back. Uh, you've been awarded something great and you've earned this. Uh, go get it, man. I look forward to talking to you in uh, one year, five years, whatever it may be, and hearing that you are flying for Air Linguist or whatever airline it may be, man. So stay in touch. Uh, I'm very excited for you and I look forward to hearing about you, man. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Good, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's going to be a good one. So I'm excited. I can't wait to get this out. I uh, wish you all the best and have a good one. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, man. AV Nation, that's a wrap of episode 144 of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. Can you believe he was able to raise 70,000 pounds? That is amazing. I had a huge smile on my face when he was telling me that news because I honestly didn't know he reached his goal. I was uh, going to help <laughs> crowdfund. I was going to help uh, put the word out, but he was able to successfully do that. That is just story and one that i'm very honored that rashid was able to come on the podcast again special shout out to rico rico thank you for setting this up i appreciate it go follow us on instagram leave us a review if you want to and most importantly share this podcast this episode with all of your friends i hope you all are doing well i hope you're staying safe and as always happy fun.